Science fiction meets reality. Each week, we'll bring you a sensational sci-fi invention and showcase the number one nerds making it come true. Coming up in this week's show. They used a beam of light. They didn't remove the memory, but they suppressed access to it. The ones who received the beam block are reported having far less emotional response. It puts that memory in a more malleable state. The rats no longer remember what meth feels like. And now, your host, Marcus Martin. Welcome, welcome, one and all. You're listening to Make It Soon, the podcast where science fiction meets reality. In this series, we're looking at some of the most iconic inventions from the world of sci-fi and meeting the incredible minds making them happen. I'm Marcus Martin, science fiction writer and author of the number one best-selling series, Convulsive. We've got a fantastic show for you today. We're talking about memory, specifically memory erasure. In the world of sci-fi, someone could erase specific memories from your mind. But what about reality? They could make you forget something significant or something so minor you might not even notice it's gone. In the world of sci-fi, someone could erase specific memories from your mind. But what about reality? <laughs> Little memory joke for you there. Anyway, joining me this week are two brilliant brain boxes. Joining us from somewhere deep in your amygdala is Dr. Alex Bryant. Alex, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Marcus. You're joining us this week as expert of the mind, but I think it's fair to say you're something of a polymath. You've got a doctorate in experimental psychology, but you're also a published fantasy author and founder of the hit improv troupe Hive Mind. I mean, you're a triple threat. Uh, Am I right in thinking you're currently working on the sequel to your debut novel, The Identity Thief, which launched earlier this year? That's right. And as it just so happens, the sequel to my first novel, Identity Thief, uh, does in fact deal with um, unwitting and unknowing memory erasure. Although in my case, it's just being done by a band of sorcerers, so I don't have to spend any time at all figuring out the scientific implications of how that works, just the psychological bizarreness and horror that unfolds as a result of suddenly realising that you've forgotten a bunch of stuff. You know, I hadn't even joined up the dots before I got you on those show. Your first book is all about memory erasure. Well, this has worked out very well, hasn't it? <laughs> well, yes, it has. And, and to tell you the truth, Marcus, I hadn't joined up the dots until we began recording. <laughs> So you're not the only one to be feeling a bit stupid right now. Um, but I should, I should add that <laughs> there is a link there. There is a link between my interests in psychology and um, the book that I'm writing, which is that I, I am I am sort of deeply fascinated with uh, mental illness, with the ways our mind can trick us in all kinds of realistic ways, and all the bizarre sort of mental disturbances and occurrences um, that can happen in fiction and in reality. So even though I don't use a sci-fi medium to explore those issues, I'm using a fantasy medium, which, as I say, saves me a lot of time explaining stuff using scientific twaddles. <laughs> um, it, it's very much those same kind of concerns, mental concerns that I'm um, fascinated by. Now, listeners at home, did you remember to pack your passports, fasten your seatbelts, and make sure your tray tables are up, because we're going down under, and we're touching down in Melbourne to welcome this week's banter correspondent, Lucy Walk. Lucy, welcome, or should I say good day? Fuck you, Marcus. <laughs> okay, never say good day. Noted. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> oh, yeah, I should also say there's no swearing allowed on this show, Lucy. Come on, it's a family oh, show. Oh, really? Oh, apologies. Um, I'm not saying yeah, this is the sixth episode I've done and you're the first to swear in it and you've been speaking for precisely 30 seconds, but, you know, <laughs> hey, like I said, we're going to our Australian <laughs> correspondent. You get what you get. <laughs> it's um, 
and this is the very unfortunate thing that in in being offended by an Australian stereotype, I have inadvertently confirmed <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, well, Lucy, you're here for the banter, and we did meet through stand-up comedy. But you are a fully certified card-carrying boffin yourself. I mean, let's be honest, you were a senior scholar at Trinity College, Cambridge, a master's scholar at the University of Chicago, a McKinsey Women in Leadership scholar, and now you're working in the health tech startup sector. I mean, I feel like you're playing the real-world love child of Hermione Granger and Tina Fey. Thank you. That actually almost made up for the Australia crack. That is a very, very kind comparison. <laughs> As someone with their finger on the pulse in the healthcare technology sector, is there one particular field or technology that's on the way that particularly excites you right now? Um, I actually think that, and this is potentially going to undermine your family-friendly show, so feel free to get me to repeat this, uh, but <laughs> I think sex tech is really fascinating, actually. There's a lot of amazing work happening around um, changing our experience of sexuality um, and everything from sort of devices to AR, VR, digital companions. Like, There's a bunch of really interesting stuff happening that I think is still in the early stages, but moving very fast. I have heard that about sex tech and that it does move quite fast. Let's discuss some of the iconic sci-fi occurrences of deliberate selective memory erasure. When I say memory wiping, what sci-fi classics come to mind? I think we should do these by category because there are so many different instances. If I say like voluntary memory wipes, Alex. <laughs> voluntary memory wipes. I think Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is the most iconic film in this category. Yeah. Um, sort of concerning itself very directly with that premise and the entire film dwelling in that. It starts with Jim Carrey deciding to erase his memory of a relationship that's turned bad, and then going off to an experimental company, Lacuna Industries, I believe it was called, to get this relationship entirely removed from his mind. But needless to say, he very quickly regrets that decision. You know, I'm kind of looking forward to discussing that one because we kind of have a real life scenario of that to come later. Yes. For me, Vanilla Sky always comes to mind, the Tom Cruise movie from a few years ago. Absolutely fantastic premise. He was in an accident, his body's been frozen, his mind's being preserved in an artificial reality until he can be sort of woken up in, in a world down the line and, and sort of rehabilitated. And obviously he's forgotten what is real and what isn't because his entire memory has been erased and his entire life is fake. And it's all about him finding a way to kind of reconstruct the truth. <laughs> Lucy, I, I, what, what comes to mind for you? <laughs> well, um, I'm part of a book club and we recently read June, which is like a sci-fi classic. I got my boyfriend to read it and then give me the spark notes so that I didn't have to read it. So hang on, hang on. When you say I'm part of a book club and we read June. Yeah. No, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's not the we in the normal sense of the word, as in we all participated as a group of individuals. We can be such a flexible term. <laughs> If I say to you, deep state memory wiping, what comes to mind? One classic example, of course, is The Born Identity, uh, which starts with Jason Bourne waking up in the middle of the sea, no idea how he got there. All he knows is that he can kick some ass. Am I right, everyone? And that's what he does <laughs> for the next two hours of gripping action. Very well worth seeing. Yeah. And, you know, the, the key thing is he can kick ass regardless of who's playing his character and the fans will flock on no wait. <laughs> what springs to mind for me when I think about deep state memory wiping is Men in Black. Oh, wait, what a, what a classic. 
great upbeat fun bit of sci-fi they've got those fantastic pocket pens like the neuralizers where they'll just rock up at your doorstep dressed like a couple of badass mormons and shine a laser pen in your eye and you'll forget what your name is because you just saw a huge cricket which has ingested a human and worn their skin and they're like ah we don't really want you remembering that so just check this out and it's done and then they might give you some fantastic sassy comment like re-wallpaper your house and get some drapes and you'll be like, ha, ah, yeah, that's right, Will Smith. <laughs> you you just do a bit of yeah. casual redecorating while you re-sculpt this person's mind. Love it. And then actually, I mean, the biggest one is that they then turns out the Statue of Liberty is a neuralizer, which I friggin' loved. Um, <laughs> so they can just casually wipe the entire planet's short-term memory, if needed, um, based on... Based on uh, what's going on? <laughs> okay, Lucy's adding another suggestion here, which I'm going to be honest, Lucy, yeah. I, I'm not sure it fits the category of deep state, but I'd love to hear it. You know what, Marcus? The fact that you don't believe the well-established truth that 51st Dates was a creation of the American government designed to control the minds <laughs> of the populace is your problem, not mine. <laughs> okay, we're going to allow 51st Dates because it is about memory erasure or memory loss. But it's, it wasn't done by the deep state. Nor was it done using sci-fi technology of any kind. And <laughs> nor was it selective. No, I, I feel like Lucy's um, done a great job of... do with <laughs> other than the word memory. <laughs> yeah, let's keep it. I agree, I agree. I'm going to be dip- diplomatic here and say we should keep it. Does it count as diplomacy if you fully insult someone and then say, I'll be diplomatic? Yeah, definitely. Is, 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 that, is that the same as when you say, um, no offence, but and then you say something very specifically intended to be offensive? <laughs> <laughs> Memory wipes in Clones. Oblivion, Spring Spine, the Tom Cruise movie. Also, Moon. So I just, I liked it before they made it into a movie. (laughs) (laughs) So great. So great. (laughs) I feel like Dollhouse, Westworld, also great examples. And then there's, then there's Alien Memory Wipes. Another great category. Have you guys seen Edge of Tomorrow? I think it had another name as well when it was released. It was like, uh, Live, Die, Repeat or something. Uh, it was with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And so aliens have kind of like wiped everyone's minds and we're forced into a temporal loop. Okay, not ringing many bells, but it's a fun film. Um, also, you've got the silence in Doctor Who with the whole creepy silence before thing. They're wearing suits as well, actually. Um, and then Embers, 2015 movie. There we go. Lots of examples. I had no idea there were so many types of memory wipe. Well, that, that's because you've watched them, but then you, you forget them immediately. And that's the problem with this genre. It struggles with retention. If you're listening at home, we'd love to know what your favourite sci-fi memory wipe is. You can vote for yours on our Facebook page because we'd have put up a little poll of all those memory wipe books and movies. And you let us know which you think handles the topic in the coolest way. Dr. Alex, can you tell us, I think we should jump into how memory works before we even try and unravel or manipulate it. How are memories even formed? Uh, the first thing to say is that there are many different types of memory and they all are un- uh, underpinned by different systems in the brain. And so in the first place, uh, you have implicit and explicit memory. Implicit memories are all the different types of memory that you don't actually have a sort of conscious awareness of or don't, don't have specific information in them. So that's things like muscle memory, much more ancient, primitive memory systems that we share with animals. Alex, you want to talk to us about your explicit memories because you're a dirty pervert. 
there's two types of explicit long-term memory. There's semantic memory and there's episodic memory. Uh, semantic memory is for specific facts, like that Paris is the capital of France or that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Oh, come on, you have more explicit facts than that. Lucy definitely does, because she's obsessed with sex technology. I thought this was a family-friendly podcast. Well, look, think about how families are made. Uh, yes, I think we try to conceal how families are made from children for much of their childhood. <laughs> I don't know why we've decided to do that as a culture, but that's what we've decided to do. And I, for one, thought you wanted to maintain that <laughs> principled silence uh, for the duration of this podcast. Well, I, I do remember being handed a book called Where Did I Come From um, as a child, and it wasn't necessarily the best way to understand how families were made. Did that book just contain a series of Polaroids? <laughs> Lucy, please tell me it was a pop-out book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the analogy... Um, for the kind of the process of the baby making was two adults skipping and getting very red and sweaty face together. Wow. wow. Yeah, they've, they've not sort of decided to shy away from the topic. They thought, no, we should do the responsible yeah. thing. We should explain where babies come from through further bizarre obfuscation. Yeah, great, great job. Yeah, and, you know, if they're going to be representative... So much sex is just one adult sweating with a skipping rope. They really should cover that so the kid doesn't grow up with <laughs> false expectations. This is so far off topic, so let's get back on topic. Episodic memory is a memory of actual events that happened in your, in your past, so like autobiographical memory. That is perfect, because I was just about to ask Lucy, if you could erase one memory... What would it be? Oh, Marcus, I mean, there are so many. In keeping with the family-friendly tone of this podcast, there are several that I will discard. Ah. And I will jump right to the first moment of a new project in my former life as a management consultant. So we were consulting with a big bank and I was meeting my new boss for the first time and got up very early to get ready and was all prepared. Um, I was like looking sharp in my favourite corporate outfit and then sort of walked into the walked into the meeting with her introduced myself everything was going really well until uh, she asked me in a not unkind voice whether my pants are on backwards and i i did have to admit <laughs> that indeed i was i was stitching up at the back. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, that is absolute gold. Thank, thank you for sharing that. I hope that doesn't get erased because that brings so much joy to anyone you share it with. Alex, I, th I think it's only, only fair we now ask you to reciprocate. Uh, if you could erase one memory from what I now know is your explicit autobiographical memory, what would it be? Mm. Uh, yeah, this unfortunately is also another fairly explicit memory from me. <laughs> I had a, a slightly difficult breakup with a girlfriend. About a month went past. We happened to meet up again for the first time. Uh, whereupon she sat me down and brought out a poem that she'd written about me. <laughs> it ran to about 80 rhyming couplets, all detailing in, in no uncertain terms and using quite colourful language, all of my major personality flaws <laughs> in very neat, well-metered rhyming couplets all the way through. It ended with the immortal, the immortal final stanza, which I, which I know, which I, you know, have down by heart. Um, um, just one final thing before your ego burns to ash. Did you know that you are absolute freaking trash? Whoa. Obviously, she didn't use the word freaking. Oh, um, that is. She then, yeah, she finished that poem and then proceeded to say that she sent it to all of our mutual friends as well. Whoa! Whoa! Oh, oh Whoa. my God, that's a lot of. 
that is that is a scorched earth policy. Mm, yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't speak anymore. Uh, shocker! It's only because she can only do couplets, and that's a lot of effort. It was right? just so like, much effort. It was, it was really quite disturbing how much effort she put into it. I feel like you're now obliged to file a libel suit in iambic pentameter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My only outstanding question is: Where can we get this poem? No reason. Um, I have, yeah, I've, I've retained a copy. Against my better judgment, I've retained a copy because the pain and humiliation that I feel from it every time I'm thinking about it yeah. is still not quite outweighed by the comedy value that I have to uh, accept that it has for, for now and the future. And there's nothing I like doing more than sacrificing my own well-being for comedy value if you ever need therapy the wonderful thing is that you could just present that poem and say someone i love wrote this about me to your therapist Mm. and they would both have a pretty good history of your personality flaws but also a clear reason why you were now in their office yeah exactly Um, yeah and if you want to mess with a therapist you could say your dad wrote it let's do it discussion number one using drugs to locate and destroy memories. And wacka wacka, I'm not talking about alcohol, nature's oldest amnesiac. (laughs) Alex, can we actually pinpoint where specific memories are even stored in the human brain before we try and erase them? In in broad terms, we understand where memories are stored, and that is in the neocortex. And so if you picture a brain in your head, what you're picturing is a half a walnut uh, with a few scraggly bits hanging underneath. The neocortex is the whole half walnut, so it's essentially the entire brain that you're picturing. And that's where where memories are stored. So we can't, can't, unfortunately, be much more specific than that. Um, The memories are basically stored in the regions of the brain responsible for um, analyzing that kind of data. So, for example, our memory for faces is stored in the part of the brain that analyzes faces. So it's pretty simple. Have you guys gone again? No, no we're still we're here, here, man. We're just hanging on your every word. What yeah. we thought we thought we'd wow. actually. I, I, I just thought I'd avoid interrupting you for a while. Yeah, and then I panicked. Then I panicked. <laughs> it was so unusual. I thought surely my connection has gone down again. This is great. You just you interrupted this is yourself. Bad, isn't it? You're like, wait, hang on. They're yeah. treating me with respect. Yeah. What's going on? you're talking about uh, memories are distributed in specific processing regions Um, so yes Um, so uh, your your memory for all kinds of information are stored in the same regions of the brain responsible for analysing that information so for example your memory for faces is stored in in the same region as the part part of the brain that analyses faces when you're looking at them directly so then the issue for anyone that wants to erase a memory or or, uh, disrupt it is how do we disrupt a particular region of the brain responsible for memory without disrupting the everyday functionality of that region as well. Oh, okay. That sounds like a heck of a challenge. So Lucy, this brings me on to ask you about studies that have tried exactly that, trying to stop specific memory formation. What can you tell us? Marcus, I I can tell you that there are some rats that no longer remember what meth feels like. (laughs) (laughs) There was a study in Florida where researchers um, essentially got rats hooked on methamphetamine hydrochloride, so the street drug that we know as meth, and then after sort of getting them addicted to it, so essentially the rats would have a preference when shown two rooms that they could go into for the one where they were given meth and, and not for the one where they were given saline. So after all of that is done, then the rats are given a solution containing latrunculin A or lat A, and this chemical interferes with actin, a protein known to be involved in memory formation. So the rats who hadn't got this continued going straight to the meth room, and the rats who had got it 
showed no preference between the rooms. So essentially their choices seemed to have not been driven by a memory of math. Whoa, okay. So, I mean, math is what you might call a pretty significant memory, given that it's highly addictive for a lot of people. So being able to suppress something as powerful as an addiction memory is really significant. The other side of mm. that is math is also an extremely blunt memory, right? That is super broad in terms of uh, the experiences that you're having. It's not as specific as something like trying to erase uh, a painful breakup that might result in an 80 stanza rhyming couplet. <laughs> Scientists are trying to run that study as we speak, but it's hard to get the rats to write the couplets, you know, sort of personalized way. <laughs> <laughs> so Alex, my question for you is, why are these scientists interested in blocking the formation of memory? Because that, that's what this latte chemical was doing, right? It, it stops the memory forming. Why is that something we want to do? Wouldn't we want to just block the memory recall? function or are they linked? Formation and memory recall are indeed linked and they're underpinned by one particular region of the brain which is the hippocampus. The, the hippocampus can be thought of as a sort of library indexing system. What you've got is the neocortex which is a huge library full of different memories containing everything you know, that you've ever come across in your life and it would be impossible for the brain to actually figure out what information it wanted to retrieve to help you um, in the moment. Um, so what the hippocampus does is it's a sort of a relay network that that takes in what you're looking for and then sends out a signal to the region of the brain storing that memory to retrieve a particular memory. The hippocampus is also responsible for memory formation. When something happens to you, the hippocampus is responsible for deciding whether it's important enough to remember. And then if it is important enough, it will literally train a particular region of the, of the brain to hold that memory for you while you're sleeping. And this is why sleep is so important for memory as well. Oh, wow. Okay. If you disrupt the hippocampus, you, you're probably going dis to disrupt memory formation and memory recall at the same time because the region is involved in both of those things. But not in actual, the actual memories stay in the neocortex and don't necessarily get tampered with at all. Super cool. Lucy, we've just had that example of LAT A. I mean, when we started researching this show, I thought beta blockers were for preventing heart attacks, but it looks like that class of blood medication can also impact our memories. I also thought that about beta blockers before this show. It turns out that there has been some interesting work done in using beta blockers to block the consolidation of emotional parts of memories being restored while preserving the conscious parts of memories. So if you think about a patient who has uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, a lot of the memories that a patient will um, be experiencing have a conscious element to them, like the details of the of the situation or the experience and, a, and an emotional memory. So how they felt at the time and also perhaps even how they've felt since. The way that the study explains this, that when you revisit long-term memories, they go from a stable to an unstable state. And in the unstable state, they can be molded to a certain degree, sort of like glass, which solidifies into something hard, but also can become molten again when heated and then solidify into something different. So the use of beta blockers in uh, the particular study that we're talking about was conducted when patients would recall the trauma that led to their PTSD. So a memory would go into an unstable state. Then the beta blocker is something that's used to block the consolidation of the emotional part of the memory when it gets restored while preserving the conscious part. So it allows you to revisit a very painful memory without re-experiencing some of the sort of hardest emotions. Okay, yeah. Patients would recall their traumatic memory after receiving a dose um, and a few weeks later then they were asked to recall their fearful events again. The ones who received the beta blocker reported having far less emotional response than a week prior. 
Okay, nice. I actually found a similar study, and I think this was led by the same person. It was Dr. Elaine Brunette at the, uh, the team at McGill. Mm. They did one in 2019. This time, rather than looking at instances of PTSD, like car crashes or conflict zones, this time they were looking specifically on the debilitating pain you might get from attachment traumas like sudden breakups, which is indeed the premise of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, that uh, a breakup could be so traumatic that you, you want to erase it from your memory. Could it also be the premise of 50 First Dates? No, it couldn't be the premise of 50 First no? Dates. Oh. And indeed, it's not the premise <laughs> of 50 First Dates. So hang on, hang on, Lucy, just to be clear, not only have you cited 50 First Dates as an example, knowing it wasn't relevant to the show, you're now revealing you've not actually even seen it. The interesting thing was that one of my family friends growing up had the VHS on their shelf. So I was very familiar with its name. I just never watched it. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Is this how you consume all popular culture? You just get the people around you to kind of experience it and you sort of get proxy spark notes from that, either deliberately or just through the DVD case spine. You know, it's an excellent point. I think, I think one of the things that helped with this one is that it has one of those like early 2000s covers where basically the whole story of the rom-com is told through like three artifacts and the mock annoyed facial expressions of the rom-com participants <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> Clearly there's some dates and they're going to fall in love at the end. Well, I, th I think those are very reasonable inferences. Didn't take power. That's what I'd say, Marcus. Wow. Okay. So it sounds a lot like you, you saw it, remembered it, and then judged it negatively. <laughs> Okay, so going back to the McGill thing, this time they, they recruited 60 participants who are suffering from this adjustment disorder. Emotional trauma from their partner terminating the relationship, being dumped sucks. And these scientists wanted to find a way to ease the pain that didn't exclusively involve ice cream and reruns of the Gilmore Girls. <laughs> Although for the record, that is a method I highly recommend. I've also found batches of apple crumble and the entire catalogue of West Wing to be equally effective. <laughs> so in this research, they wanted to see if they could interrupt the way the brain solidifies those emotional aspects of the memories, much like they were doing in, in Lucy's study. So the isn't to delete the memory entirely, but it's to tone it down by removing the emotional impact. So they got the participants this time to type up first person accounts of the breakup and then read it in a therapy session. So they're deliberately provoking all of those traumatic feelings and then bring them back to the surface. And during the study, they're taking this propanolol beta blocker again. And the researchers found that four to six sessions of memory reactivation under the influence of this drug was sufficient to dramatically blunt the memories they had associated with their attachment. So as they put it, if you decrease the strength of the memory, you decrease the strength of the pain. So Alex, my question is, could the same technique be used on other negative memories? Oh, wait, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, and I should also be ask, ask that, asking that indeed. Okay. Wow, could that same technique be used on other negative memories? <laughs> okay, can you read it again like you're not on early morning kids TV? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Could that same technique be used on other negative memories? <laughs> oh, Alex, what a great question. I think it actually could. For example, I read a study that used propanolol to tweak people's memories rather than erase them in order to cure arachnophobia, which so it would allow people to hold tarantulas after three months of combined drug and memory triggering therapy. So that's pretty powerful, I would say. Honestly, I was just so distracted by Alex's mechanical reading of the question prompt. <laughs> I could barely hear your words, Lucy. It was just echoing around in my head, like some sort of dystopian dream where Siri is torturing me. The show will just feel more organic as it goes up. Yeah. <laughs> Make It Soon podcast is free. Much like you are free. Or at least, I hope you're free. Oh God, if you're being held captive, call for the doctor, quick. If you're lucky, David Tennant will be with you in a flash. If you're unlucky, you'll get Christopher Eccleston, but whatever, just hop in the TARDIS and get out of there. Phew, oh, 
Now that we've busted you out of space prison, what to do with your newfound freedom? Why not support the best podcast in the Gamma Quadrant? Head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. This show is entirely funded by listeners. So the next season will be thanks to you. It's super quick to support. Just go to makeitsoon.com slash donate. Thanking you. Now back to the show. Alex, it's your moment to shine and redeem yourself and prove to us and indeed the world that you are at least partially human. <laughs> um, can you tell us other drugs that we're trying to use to block the emotional aspects of memory? Yeah, so another drug that's been used in a very similar way to propanolol is MDMA, beloved of ravers and 18-year-olds uh, wearing bucket heads in the outskirts of London. <laughs> Um, MDMA, which is of course the, the main active ingredient of ecstasy, the illegal recreational drug, has also been used to try and treat PTSD in a very similar way to how we just heard with propanolol. Essentially, you give a patient MDMA in a therapeutic context, sit them down and then discuss a particular traumatic memory with them. What that will do is, just as Lucy was describing earlier, it puts that memory in a more fragile and malleable state, which then has been shown to be able to blunt the emotional aspect of that memory by sort of recontextualizing it and transforms it into something that's more manageable and less traumatic. Okay, so that sounds great for someone who's looking to dampen a traumatic memory, but there's only one slight caveat in that uh, MDMA is what you might call deeply illegal. Uh, yes, very true. People are often quite shocked when they hear this. <laughs> We frequently research recreational drugs um, to see if they have any therapeutic value. And indeed, many recreational drugs started as pharmaceuticals before they became recreational. And many still are still used in a therapeutic context, such as heroin, which you can still get in, in hospitals if you need it. Anyone listening at home, if you're having a bad day, don't try heroin. Try the ice cream and Gilmore Girls thing and then just talk to someone. Alex is mad. <laughs> what, I, what I will just say to that is that uh, as a doctor... I do know someone who regularly gives heroin to children quite legally because it's very safe in an inappropriate context. So your move, Marcus. Okay. Uh, <laughs> as a citizen, I would ask what those children's parents are thinking and when this doctor is going to be struck off and will it be the same hearing as you're being struck off? You can't strike me off, Marcus, because I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just someone with a PhD. <laughs> okay, I feel like that's really, really a point for me. Uh, yeah, from a certain point of view, it is, isn't it? <laughs> okay, no, I hear what you're saying. What I'm trying to say here is that it's, it's a false dichotomy between recreational drugs and pharmaceuticals. If we could show MDMA is perfectly safe to take in a therapeutic context, which indeed we already have, then we could be seeing this rolled out very soon. Yes, uh, Lucy, do you have a view? I just want to remind the audience that Sherlock Holmes was a high-functioning opium user, so... Let's all keep that in mind when we think about how to parent our children into geniuses. And let's not forget that Queen Victoria was an absolute coke fiend. She got it all from her doctor. Honestly, I really am regretting bringing you two role models onto this family-oriented <laughs> show. Remember, don't do drugs unless a medical doctor prescribes them to you. And make sure that they are a medical doctor because people do make that mistake frequently, Alex. Such a... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you get non-medical doctors just telling you how when they were 18, they wore a bucket and they feel fine. <laughs> Alex, how close are we to rolling out this sort of maverick MDMA treatment? And I ask that with no prejudice or judgment, ignore everything I've said up until this point. Uh, I was going to do that anyway, but thank you for your permission. <laughs> uh, we're in phase three right now, uh, which is the final phase that a new pharmaceutical would need to go through before it becomes available on the market. It's the largest and the most complete study of whether a drug is effective compared to what other drugs are on the market. So you you could be receiving MDMA from your psychotherapist um, as little as two years from now. 
So there was a slightly bonkers case study, more so than the MDMA stuff that you've been sharing. Can you tell us what MK Ultra was? Because for me, the, the word MK Ultra conjures up a 2009 track from Muse's album The Resistance. <laughs> um, but it turns out there's quite a story behind the title. MK Ultra was a USA military top secret research project designed with the goal of, among many other things, trying to achieve deliberate and very complete memory loss in unwitting victims. So all the research we've looked at so far is primarily with a therapeutic aim in mind. The US military was very much doing the stereotypical evil deep state thing of just trying to erase people's minds in military contexts. MKUltra used LSD primarily, along with various other very experimental, very scientifically dubious approaches to try and achieve this. They used hypnosis, they used suboral sound waves, and many other things that we don't even know about because it's all shrouded in mystery. What is Operation Midnight Climax? <laughs> so Operation Midnight Climax was a particular quote-unquote research project where the CIA set up fake brothels on the outskirts of town. Then they spiked unwitting customers of these brothels with LSD and observed them through various elaborate surveillance systems in the brothels. The so-called prostitutes in these brothels, some of them were researchers who were also undercover and trying to glean information from these spiked and unwitting guinea pigs in their horrible sort of Hall of Mirrors hellscape that they cool. created. God the damn. reason that apparently why they, why they decided to embark on this scheme is uh, because they thought that the customers would be too embarrassed to say what had happened because then they'd have to admit they'd gone to a seedy brothel in the first place. Ha! What fools they were. <laughs> yes. Shame. <laughs> Guess again. I would just like to point out the intense similarities between this CIA operation and the plot of the movie Hustlers, uh, headlined admirably by Jennifer Lopez last year. Have you actually seen that movie, Hustlers, or is it just on someone's bookshelf and they've given you the spark notes, Lucy? Marcus, Marcus, I can assure you that I have watched Hustlers uh, cover to cover, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> yes, they, they sure do. Lucy, have you ever opened a DVD case and seen what's inside? <laughs> Beginning to suspect you're not actually familiar with this medium at all. <laughs> So, so, Alex, what was the proposed mechanism for the memory erasure under the, the CIA's uh, MKUltra plan? Well, several were experimented with. As I mentioned, they used hypnosis. They used suboral sound waves. In other words, sound that's too deep to actually hear. They used LSD most commonly. And they even apparently brought in claimed clairvoyants and psychics into their research facility to see if they could make these psychics perform psychic feats under observed laboratory conditions. Oh, did any of it work? Uh, the results of MKUltra are quite shrouded in mystery, but the bottom line is no, because all these guys were complete goons just throwing LSD at the wall and seeing <laughs> what happened. <laughs> Okay, so it's essentially a crossover between Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Mindhunter. Yeah, or imagine imagine the film Men in Black, except aliens don't exist and none of the technology they do actually works and they're just a bunch of totally self-deluded idiots who are wandering around <laughs> causing a lot of misery and havoc in people's lives for reasons that are not remotely clear. Oh, okay, so it's much more like Zero Dark Thirty. I haven't seen that film and take note, Lucy, I'm not afraid to admit that. <laughs> Okay, that was good. Well, that, that's my attempt at topical satire, but really the film came out about 20 years ago and it sounds like no one's seen it anyway. <laughs> Alex, surely this whole thing was wildly illegal. Oh uh, Yeah, well, you, you, you might well think that, it, that it, it's completely illegal and unethical to just round up unwitting citizens, spike them with LSD, huge doses of LSD so they don't, don't know what's going on, and then perform horrible experiments on them. But what you're forgetting is that this was all conducted by the US Army. Alex, this MK Ultra thing, absolutely insane. The CIA were basically throwing LSD at people to see if they could wipe their memories. 
Did we learn anything useful from that? Uh, the short answer is probably not. At the same time as the CIA were doing this, there was also lots of much more legitimate therapeutic research into LSD going on throughout the 60s and 70s. What a lot of people don't realize today is that LSD is alleged to be the most researched pharmaceutical of all time, thanks to the very heavy research program that was going on, which sadly got discontinued following the banning of LSD for recreational use. Anyone listening at home, be sure to follow the Make It Soon podcast on Facebook, and you can find out more of the crazy details about the MK Ultra program and we'll post some photos and articles from the other case studies in the show, uh, usually in the week after each episode airs. So hop on board. And you can find out more, especially about Midnight Climax. It won't even be in your search history. How great is that? <laughs> Turning once again to the person with, and we should emphasize this, the most academic credentials in the area of drugs and what they can and can't do for your brain. <laughs> At the risk of sounding like a homeopathist, Alex, is there an alternative method of memory erasure that doesn't rely on pounding our brains with synthetic drugs? Absolutely. It's a lot less sci-fi, but simply using brain training techniques, we can achieve similar kind of effects. So, for example, one study from 2014 showed participants a couple of objects, and then they asked the participants to deliberately try to forget one of the objects. And they would try and do that in any way they wanted. And they discovered that participants had a much harder time identifying the objects that they'd been asked to forget previously which indicates that their attempts to forget a thing deliberately did have some level of effect. That's fascinating. If we sit down to revise information and purposefully try to drill it into our brains, we've shown that we are quite good at that. So it seems that the, the reverse is also true, that if we want to deliberately forget something, we can achieve that effect in our brain. This just sounds like repression, which I thought was unhealthy. And unique to Catholics. <laughs> yes, so we've had this idea in psychotherapy um, ever since Freud that deliberately blocking out memories, trying to forget memories, could be unhealthy, could cause that memory to sort of linger on a subconscious level and cause you ongoing subconscious misery that you're no longer even aware of and able to deal with. But the truth is actually more complicated than that. We don't necessarily know that repression is always a, a bad move. Sometimes forgetting stuff is very important and very healthy, and it might be often that our brain is doing its job properly and just enabling us to forget and move on from memories that no longer serve any function. Marcus, I'm not wholly sure that I want to remember that whole Midnight Climax thing. Which makes me very happy to introduce you to a 2016 study by Princeton University, which was also interested in training the brain to modify memories. Right, so what was their angle? Well, they reckoned that the context you experience an event in significantly shapes your later recall of it. I can personally attest this. So I, I once went to see the first Avengers movie in the cinema, and there was what I can only describe as a fiasco. It was sold out, stewards coming in, moving people. There were people in our seats when we got there. Then the projector broke, so then everyone's told they have to get up, they have to move. We go to another screen and there aren't enough seats. But they've taken a 300-seater theatre and tried to move everyone into 250-seater. And people are starting to find this whole thing very funny because it's kind of musical chairs. So when the film kicks off, we're all primed. We have a great time. And by the end of it, I think it's the funniest movie I've seen all year. So much so that a week later, I go and see it again. And I've told all of my friends it's the funniest movie they'll see this year. Don't get me wrong, it's pretty good. But that auditorium was like it was filled with tumbleweeds the second time. So it's the same film, but a different context. And suddenly my memory of its quality is being called into question. How do you like that for an analogy? Well, I mean, you know, as a non-scientist, I just wanted to say, what a reliable anecdote. Huge sample base. One guy goes to the cinema, sees the same movie twice, finds the jokes on the second time. There are absolutely no alternative explanations for that effect. <laughs> As our <laughs> resident scientist did attest, that is indeed what the Princeton team were going for. Because they figured if you reactivate a memory later under a different context, 
you can modify the memory itself. This works because we rely on context as part of our memory recall. So in Princeton, they got the participants to remember a set of words and then told them either deliberately remember or deliberately forget them. And they found that by modifying the context, they could help people forget. So in other words, changing your association of this memory can help you forget things more easily. Well, that sounds pretty good. Are there any downsides to this seemingly miraculous cure? Well, the only downside is you're, if you're a sort of uh, Machiavellian mastermind with dastardly intent, much like these Operation Midnight Climax people. <laughs> so this technique only works if the person with the memory is the one who wants to forget. So it's not a useful approach if you're trying to wipe someone else's memory unless you're Darren Brown, and that's basically hypnosis. Alex, does hypnosis actually work? Um, yeah, <laughs> hypnosis Hypnosis certainly does work in a therapeutic context. Although what it's doing is not so mysterious. It's just putting the brain in a more relaxed and suggestible state, making it, uh, again, a little bit more malleable. So hypnosis will help erase memories, but it'll only help by reinforcing the mechanisms we've talked about earlier, which is a sort of deliberate forgetting or deliberate re-evaluating of memories by the patient. Okay. You definitely can't walk up to someone and just brainwash them into forgetting everything that they know. To do that, you'd have to read my upcoming novel. Is that a second cheeky plug? I mean, given how many times you plugged 50 First Dates, a middling rom-com, you may as well also plug the novel that I would actually like to sell copies of. Which you have yet to declare the name of. Is that because it's not got one yet? It doesn't have a name, Marcus. It's a work in progress. Okay. Well, I'm not sure that's a plug then, is it, really? I can plug things that don't exist yet. Totally normal. <laughs> Hey, Lucy, there's so much effort right now going into trying to forget things. Is there actually any advantage to that? There is actually a little evidence that says minds that are decluttered can learn more efficiently. There's also some really interesting research that goes into the idea of active forgetting. So the brain having a system that deliberately does forget for you, as opposed to passive forgetting, which is sort of the decay of memories or in some ways like a weakness of the remembering system. And the thinking behind that with forgetting is that overly precise memories and sort of a large volume of them may actually not be very helpful to us because they don't allow us to take away the key lessons from an experience and apply them. For example, you know, if you burn your hand touching a hot saucepan, you don't need to remember that the sky was a particular shade of blue that day. So the idea is that strategic forgetting in order to pull out the key lessons and make them generalizable might actually be quite valuable. So I came across a 2016 article on how glial cells are kind of like the brain's nocturnal gardeners. I have explicit memories of nocturnal gardeners. <laughs> hey! That is good. That, des that deserved it. I liked it, yeah. <laughs> so these cells go around your brain and kind of prune the unnecessary mind clutter, which implies that positively focusing on what you do want to recall will strengthen those neural pathways and leave the other ones weaker for the glial cells to then prune those weaker connections. Which goes back to what Alex was saying about the importance of sleep in memory formation and what Lucy's saying in the importance of being able to only remember the salient details. Most basic and primitive memory processes are based on what's called Hebbian learning, which is to say that neurons that fire together wire together. If you get two neurons firing um, in sequence, activating at the same time, they will learn that they should be firing in sequence more often, and their connection between them will grow, making them more likely to trigger each other to fire. But what that means is that over time, the neurons in the brain have a habit of becoming more and more closely connected with each other. And the more that happens, the more useless the brain becomes at actually doing its job, because it means that neural activation somewhere will trigger too much neural activation 
function everywhere else and not really achieve any useful functional outcomes. So what the glial cells do is they go around and they prune all the connections that don't seem so useful and have to make a judgment call on which ones to prune and which ones are in fact useful and important and to keep. So in that way, they are serving to reinforce the key learning that the brain is doing by rejigging how it's all connected to each other. So this vividly reminds me of a great scene in Inside Out, the Pixar movie, which is absolutely fantastic. If you've not seen it, definitely watch it. But it depicts the inner workings of a child's mind as it's sort of storming and forming and you're trying to process complex emotions. And Amy Poehler's character ends up kind of in the outer regions of the brain and comes across a couple of glial cells which are just ripping out seemingly redundant memories. And she makes a joke about the characters ripping out something like uh, elementary French. Never going to need that. You know, exactly the sort of stuff that you always wish you could remember but can't. Lucy said that one of the reasons we need to declutter, and what you were saying as well, Alex, is for our brain to function better and to improve our learning ability. I feel like I might have some of the most active glial cells on the planet. I am like a honed glial athlete. If you want me to strip something out of my brain, consider it done. I've got the Usain bolts of forgetting in my head. I think it's fair to say I'm a quick learner, but oh my God, what is the point if you're as quick a forgetter as I am? It's just an open question, really. Um, okay, well, we'll move on. <laughs> If, in the future, we do become able to locate specific memories in the brain, would we potentially be able to manipulate the body's current gardening system of glial cells to target them? So much in the same way that the revolution in gene editing technology relies on the CRISPR-Cas9 mechanism, which is a naturally occurring bacterial defense mechanism against invading viral DNA, We've learned to program that to edit specific genes in humans. I'm wondering if memory tagging in brains improves, could we similarly learn to program glial cells to do a targeted job? So let's say we live in a world 50 years from now where we can easily and accurately edit specific memories. Alex, do you think the mere knowledge of that possibility would actually cause a species-wide spike in paranoia? Because we're already struggling to deal with a world of fake news and deep fake videos. What would it do to us if we all suspect someone has removed crucial memories from our brain? Uh, well, the reassuring thing to note is that almost all the technologies we've been talking about today, and even those are very highly speculative, they all do rely on subject participation and cooperation in the process. So even if we do get a technology that can erase memory with high level of accuracy, the chances are that the person this is happening to will need to know about this and cooperate with the process to have any chance of success, because it will require some kind of uh, literal cognitive input from the patient to make it work. For example, by thinking of the memory that needs to be erased. Just to be safe, don't go to a brothel. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah there's absolutely. one thing we can learn it's not to go to a brothel yeah unless you want to speak directly to the cia in which case it's your best bet This show is made possible by the generosity of listeners like your good self. This show is entirely self-made. Help us bring the next season fresh to your ears at Maximum Warp. Just head to makeitsoon.com slash donate. It literally only takes a moment to donate and it makes such a big difference. If you believe that this show deserves a future, makeitsoon.com slash donate. Help me to bring you more amazing sci-fi content. Thanks so much. I truly appreciate it and I couldn't do it without you. Now, where were we? Presumably something deeply weird. Let's find out. Let's just say the whole try and forget vibe isn't working for people. Is there another way we can wipe the old mind slate at least a little bit cleaner? If you recall the traumatic memory enough times and reevaluate it so it's not so bad, what you're actually doing is recalling the memory and pairing it with a new emotion so it gets restored alongside that new emotion. And this is one reason why therapy might actually work. 
but it does run the risk of warping the memory each time. So the more you recall a childhood memory, the stronger it'll get, but potentially the more different it'll be from reality. Okay, cool. So that's kind of what they were doing in those studies with the propanolol. They were getting people to reactivate these memories, but in a context where emotions were being supported through the therapy, they were kind of capitalizing on that mechanism. Definitely. So memories that have a strong emotional component consist simply of a memory of a given event plus an activation of, of the relevant emotion. So when we recall a memory, which is to bring it out of the long-term storage using the hippocampus into short-term awareness, the original long-term memory gets destroyed, as Lucy told us earlier, and then it gets reformed as a new long-term memory afterwards, which means that while it's being recalled, it's in a very plastic and malleable state and it can be changed. Each time you recall information from long-term memory and then resave it, you're strengthening the memory. Are there any downsides to this? There's a little bit of evidence to suggest that therapy, when it recalls traumatic memories in patients, can strengthen them and even cause them to become more traumatic by asking patients to dwell on the negative sides of these old memories. And so unwittingly, therapists, some people argue, actually can do the work of traumatizing their patients themselves because they actually increase the negative content of old memories that weren't necessarily so bad to begin with. If we are thinking brain training and drugs might not be the way to go, Lucy, what for our sci-fi loving brain erasure fans are the remaining options on the table right now? Well, Marcus, you could take a look at the old surgery and implants set of solutions. For example, one common usage of implants is electroconvulsive therapy or ECT, which was sort of a bit groovy in the 1960s, but has, has been done a bit more since. <laughs> Studies in the 1960s found that ECT, which is essentially running an electric current through your head. I'm not sure that I understand it a lot better than that. No, that's about it. <laughs> it's not the most complex or subtle tools. <laughs> Studies found that ECT could make rats forget a fear memory, and this was done with humans in 2014 in two small-scale studies, and both found that ECT could successfully block traumatic memories, and one found it had long-term reductive effects through repeated sessions. Is electroconvulsive therapy as painful as we think? Uh, modern ECT is, has come on a long way from the sort of 60s stereotype of just shocking a patient's brain until their entire body goes into spasm. Back then, you, you had all kinds of nasty uh, bruising, uh, brain bleeding, and breaking stuff from the body spasming. Nowadays, we use much softer electric shocks. Uh, we also target them better, which means that they only hit parts of the brain that need to be hit, and they ignore parts that will make you go into spasm. Uh, and it's also all done under anaesthetic nowadays. The patient's unconscious. Oh, delightful. So really, the modern day ECT experience is kind of like flying business class compared to the terrifying strapped to the wing of the plane ride you would have had in the 60s. Yeah, exactly. You just go in, you can choose an in-flight movie, you get a little complimentary packet of peanuts, and then a huge voltage is shot through your brain. I've never flown business class. <laughs> ECT isn't the only acronym this week. Alex, what's the deal with DBS? Uh, DBS has been researched in a speculative 2017 paper. It points to the potential use of adding a surgical implant to the brain to disrupt memory expression in the hippocampus. And what the implant's doing is a, a technique called deep brain stimulation. I think someone did that at my old office Christmas party. Wait, that was deep Brian stimulation. Sorry, continue. Uh. <laughs> Deep brain stimulation involves implanting a device that sends minor electrical signals to a region of the brain to boost its activity, kind of like a pacemaker for the heart. So if we could do this to the hippocampus, it could improve memory creation and recall. Okay, but how and why would we want to use this device to raise memories? 
Well, just as it could stimulate the neurons, it could also um, deactivate these neurons, make them less likely to activate. And if you did this to the hippocampus, you could theoretically block the ability to create or recall memories, but in a more targeted way. So you could turn on the device when you wanted to, turn it off when you wanted to. Um, and this could be very useful for PTSD, as we previously discussed. A lot of therapy might have a use for the ability to selectively erase memories, such as traumatic ones or ones that are causing phobias. Honestly, mate, I'm trying to focus on your words, but I feel like I'm on an episode of Spring Watch right now. It's like, it's just <laughs> a crazy, soothing bird song. I'm finding it irresistible, very distracting. Uh, how close are we to rolling DBS out? Oh, well, this is extremely speculative, so we're miles off the kind of selectivity required to identify and block a specific memory. So all we'd achieve right now, if we did this in humans, would be to completely block all memories from being formed and recalled, so it's not very useful. Alex, if you, for example, didn't want implants, is there a more conventional alternative for removing memories surgically? Yes, we could use surgery to erase memories. And in fact, such an operation was unwittingly performed uh, back in the 50s. What happened in that operation? So in 1953, a man called Henry Meliasson was treated for very severe epilepsy with a very experimental procedure that involved removing both of his hippocampi, which, as you might remember, is the part of the brain responsible for creating and then recalling memories. Really? I thought it was the vehicle that Scooby and Shaggy drove around in to fight crime. No, nothing for that one. <laughs> <laughs> I like no it. Way. I hear you can actually get laughter tracks quite reasonably nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, continue. Guess <laughs> yeah. so what? Uh, we didn't actually know that the hippocampus was responsible for memory formation back in the 50s. So these surgeons went in and just whipped them out of this patient, woke him up and discovered, to their horror, and probably even more to his, that he was no longer able to form any kind of long-term memory. So what that meant was that he had no ability to remember anything that happened before about five minutes ago in his life. And he remained that way for the rest of his life. He was not able to ever form long-term memories of what had happened to him following the operation. Although he could remember everything that had happened before the operation. So sort of like 50 First Dates. <laughs> A more accurate film reference would be Memento, actually. In fact, Memento was based on thorough research of Henry Meliasson. And the main character in Memento is suffering from the exact same issue, which is caused by a head injury like Henry Meliasson. So what did we discover after this? Well, it was thanks to Henry Melanson that we discovered how important the hippocampus was in generating memory, and we certainly didn't perform that operation ever again. We also, thanks to him, discovered all the differences that I outlined at the beginning between, for example, episodic and semantic memory, because after the operation, Henry was still able to form semantic memories. It was a bit more difficult for him, but he was still able to remember facts if he rehearsed and revised them for a long period of time. But then what he was never able to do again was remember any specific events in his past, so episodic memory, as I described it at the beginning. Interesting. And we do doing that type of surgery today? Uh, yes, we are in very different forms. It's called resective surgery, and it's still performed in very severe cases of epilepsy. Normally, what we do now is we can remove a very specific chunk of the brain that is causing the epileptic seizures, and we now have a much more informed knowledge of what chunks of the brain do what, so that we'll know when we're going in what are the potential downsides of removing that part of the brain. And often, if it's a minor loss of function that you'll have from losing that part of the brain, it will be worth it for a patient who will no longer suffer from a very severe debilitating epilepsy. But most remarkably of all, though, we, we perform much more serious surgeries. We can cut the brain entirely in half through the corpus callosum, and we can even perform what's called a hemispherectomy, which is removing one half of the brain completely. Which, remarkably, if you do that in a young child, the other half of the brain will start to pick up the function of the half that was removed, and you can live a very full, healthy life with no functional impairment at all. 
can we use this kind of procedure to deliberately erase memory rather than just for uh, conditions like epilepsy? We could easily do what we did to Henry Melanson, which is to remove the hippocampus completely uh, in an unwitting subject and make them unable to ever again form long-term memories. But unfortunately, we can't do that retrospectively. We can't make them forget stuff that's already happened to them before the surgery. So it wouldn't cause memory erasure in the way that we've been thinking about it today. Right, guys, it's time for our final topic. We've talked about memory erasure. How can we not talk about the neuralizers? They're like the gold standard of cool when it comes to sci-fi memory wipes. And I think we need to talk about optogenetics. Marcus, I'm just going to start where many members of the audience are, which is with the question, what is optogenetics? So optogenetics is where you add light-sensitive proteins into specific brain cells so you can monitor them and then control their activity with light signals. There's a study in 2014 we wanted to talk about here. What that's Ah, well, they took some mice, genetically modified their neurons so that they glowed when they were activated, and I should have ended in a downturn. (laughs) (laughs) They took some mice and genetically modified them so that their neurons glowed when activated. Did they just want a really furry lava lamp? Well, this actually enabled the scientists to see which neurons were firing when a specific memory was activated. Excellent. Sorry, I'm back. I'm back. It's a really natural interviewing technique from Lucy. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sick burns from Bill Oddie out there. (laughs) Um, uh, You ready? You ready? You ready? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Um, Oh, we could trace the memory to specific individual neurons. How? On it. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, Lucy, in your own words, it's fine. Let's just take it. Let's take another sleep. <laughs> so, how could they? <laughs> okay. You really made it your own, there. I love it. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, I'm getting it this time. How could they trace a memory to specific individual neurons? That is kind of the holy grail of this whole problem, isn't it? It's how do we trace specific memories in the brain? And unfortunately, as always for mice, the answer's not great. What they did was deliberately introduce a new bad memory in the mice so that then they could track it. So by creating this new memory, scientists could see which neurons fired and then pinpoint where the memory was being stored. Our methods for this are still quite crude. So these experiments are generally limited to giving pleasure and pain because they're easy to instigate. It's usually a combination of giving mice things like methadone and electrocution. So it really is a weird gig being a lab mouse. That's just a normal Tuesday afternoon for a psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) So they've created a new negative memory then figured out precisely where it was held in the brain. What then? Well, they used a beam of light to disrupt the neurons that they are identified specifically. So low frequency light weakened the neural connections, which suppressed the mice's ability to access the specific memory being targeted. So they didn't remove the memory, but they suppressed access to it. Has optogenetics been used elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. So there was another 2014 study which used optogenetics again in mice. And this time, instead of trying to control a specific memory, they were activating a memory with optogenetics and then giving the mouse a negative or a positive emotion alongside it. The mice were then shown to have flipped their feelings about the memory later. So they were doing what we were talking about earlier, which is recontextualizing memories. Instead of erasing a memory, with optogenetics, we can 
not only suppress or reactivate it selectively, but we can use that alongside recontextualization to drastically change the way someone feels about that memory. So last question there. Are those awesome neuralizer pens in Men in Black going to be a reality in humans anytime soon? Current optogenetics, that's super invasive right now because you kind of have to slice the head open to be able to shine your old laser pen in there. Unfortunately, in Men in Black, flashing a pen, the way they use it is pulverizing the entire optical nerve. So it's not the precise neural targeting of the hippocampus that we're currently doing. Those techniques just don't exist in a non-invasive way right now. Alex, Lucy, thank you both so much for lending us your collective brilliance this week. It has been an absolute blast having you guys on. I want to shout out to all of the birds that Alex has brought with him from his garden who have also been co-hosting this week's episode. In all seriousness, though, thank you guys. It has been great having you on. Alex, what was that name of your book again? Oh, thanks so much for asking, Marcus. Yes, it's called The Identity Thief. It does indeed involve around dastardly sorcerers erasing memories and causing havoc in people's minds. So do check it out. The Identity Thief by Alex Bryant. There you go. Alex Bryant, which is his author name and his porn star name. So you can just search for either Operation Midnight Climax or The Identity Thief and his (laughs) name will appear by both. My porn star name is Marcus Martin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> seemed, it seemed to be available. I thought it looked a lot better in those movies. Um, so to everyone listening at home, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Make It Soon podcast. And if you've enjoyed this week's show, please leave us a review on whatever platform you're using. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. We're out! So I feel like a hippocampus removal has that limited benefit because it's such a crass intervention it's like if you want jason Bourne to still be useful you need to know how to make sure you leave the right bit of his hippocampus behind you know the bit that knows how to kick ass i'm sorry to say marcus that uh, at the very beginning of this podcast i explained that muscle memory is completely separate from episodic memory so you can do what you want to jason Bourne; he'll still be able to kick ass at the end of it would you remember that scene in berlin where he stimulates brian <laughs> I, I think you've been watching a different film to the rest of us marcus uh all right well you said my name funny which was weird. i did say marcus which was strange. <laughs> <laughs>